I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. This morning we begin a completely new section. And we begin what is without a doubt the most theological chapter of 1 Corinthians. The deepest chapter of 1 Corinthians and really... The Grand Mountain Peak. 1 Corinthians is like a mountain range, and if, if you believe that, then this is the highest mountain peak of the epistle. So with great joy, we come now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not going to be in a rush to get through this chapter. Uh, there are some sections that are larger, and we'll deal with a, a number of verses. But this morning, we will only be considering the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Corinthians 15 Beginning in verse number 1, these are the words of God. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. The great Preacher David Silversides said, quote, The spirit of the age has infected the professing church to the effect of thinking that doctrine is not important. But these verses show that if there is no doctrine, then there is no gospel and there is no salvation. Pastor Silversides made this statement nearly 30 years ago. And if it was true then, how much more is it true today? The epistle of 1 Corinthians is largely driven by the various problems in the Corinthian church. You remember way back in chapter 1, Paul mentions a letter that he received from Chloe's household. And this letter informed Paul of some of the issues that were taking place in the church. And also in this letter... Paul was asked questions about how to handle certain situations. And most of the issues and most of the questions concerned things that were primarily of a practical nature. What do we do about divisive factions in the church? What do we do uh, about uh, contentious parties that want to group themselves in accordance with their favorite teacher? How do we handle a member in the church who is living in open, flagrant sin? Should Christians, should members of the church be taking each other to court? Can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? And most recently, we saw Paul address a host of topics related to the public worship of God. Head coverings, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, tongues and prophecies. We saw all of this in chapters 11 through 14. And what we have learned as we have studied the careful answers that Paul gives to all of these questions is that doctrine can never be divorced from practice. Even though these issues are of a more practical nature, Paul always takes them back to the theological principles that undergird his answer. But now as we come to chapter 15, we have something that's a bit different. The topic that Paul will address in chapter 15 is one that is primarily doctrinal in nature. But it's a doctrine that has serious implications for the church, for the Christian, for the Christian life. In chapter 15, Paul doesn't begin with the practice and work his way back to the doctrine. No, in chapter 15, he begins with the doctrine and then moves to the practical implications of that doctrine. And here in chapter 15, as you know, Paul is dealing with the doctrine of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is the locus classicus for the doctrine of the resurrection. Locus classicus is Latin for the classic text. 
right? 1 Corinthians 11 is the locus classicus for the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 13 is the locus classicus for Christian love. And 1 Corinthians 15 is the text for the doctrine of the resurrection. You could not do a study of the doctrine of the resurrection, not a good one anyways, without referencing 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection and other portions of Scripture, absolutely. But this is where this doctrine is most thoroughly and comprehensively unfolded for us. But I want you to remember how we got all of these passages. Did Paul write 1 Corinthians 11 because he woke up one morning and decided, you know what would be great? It would be great if I wrote a treatise on the Lord's Supper. No. He wrote 1 Corinthians 11 because of the problems in the Corinthian church and their errors in observing the Lord's Supper. Well, the same is true of chapter 15 when Paul is defending the doctrine of the resurrection. There were some individuals in the Corinthian church who were denying the doctrine of the resurrection. And so we get these glorious texts of Scripture because of the abysmal problems in the Corinthian church. This is God working all things together for good. It's not good that people in Corinth are denying the resurrection, but it is good that we have chapter 15, okay? Notice uh, verse 12. Look at 15, 12. Look at verse 12 of chapter 15. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no erection of the dead? Right? So that's the, the context. And time does not allow us this morning. I had it in my study notes, but I could not fit it in the sermon. Time just doesn't allow me to go into detail on how this error crept into the church. Uh, I do want to, to consider that with you when we get down to verse 12. Maybe we'll look at what was it that was influencing the church? Who were these false teachers that were denying the resurrection of the dead? By the way, there are still people today... Uh, who would claim to be evangelical Christians and deny the resurrection of the dead. Uh, Their error maybe comes from a different source, but it's the same error. So this is a very relevant passage of Scripture. In fact, not only is it still alive today, but in recent, really just in the recent year, I saw several prominent teachers, uh, if not overtly, implicitly saying that they might be ones who deny the resurrection from the dead. The point, though, is this. The Corinthians had these awful problems that become blessings to us because they are the reasons that wonderful passages like 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Corinthians 15, really the whole book, exist. But let me make a very big statement. And you know that I don't like to just make these big hyperbolic, overly exaggerated statements. And so this isn't one of them. I mean what I'm about to say, and I want you to listen carefully. The problem that Paul addresses in chapter 15 is absolutely the most heinous problem in the Corinthian church. That's a big statement. And if you've been here for the sermons in 1 Corinthians, you know that's a big statement. Why? Because this is a church with a lot of big problems. There's members taking each other to court. Right? There's there's members who don't understand anything about Christian marriage. There's members who, who don't understand Christian liberty. There's members getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And you say, Pastor, you're going to say that this is the biggest problem in the Corinthian church? Why do you say that? Because you don't go to hell if you take your church member to court, but you do go to hell if you deny the doctrine of the resurrection. Amen. Amen. That's why it's such a big deal. Mm-hmm. The sad reality is that there will always be immorality in the church. There will always be division in the church until Jesus comes. There will always be doctrinal problems in the church. Because the church is composed of imperfect people. Therefore, there is no such thing as a perfect church. But if you deny the doctrine of the resurrection, listen to me, you lose the gospel. And if you lose the gospel... You're not just a church with problems. 
Now, if you lose the gospel, you cease to be a church of Jesus Christ. That's right. Consider what our confession says. If you want to read this with me, you can look at the confession in the back of your pew, or you can turn to page 684 in the Trinity Hymnal. But consider what our confession says in chapter 26 in paragraph 3, if you just want to jot it down. Chapter 26 in paragraph 3, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says, The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. True churches, good churches, healthy churches, our church is subject to mixture and error. We might have mixture in our morality, we might have error in our doctrine, but when we begin to reject essential components of the gospel, we cease to be a church at all and we become a synagogue of Satan. So as we work our way through chapter 15, I don't want any of you to forget what's at stake. I want you to remember how important is this doctrine of the resurrection. Well, let me give you an overview of Paul's argument in this chapter, and then we'll spend the rest of our time focusing in on verses 1 and 2. See, verses 1 and 2 serve as the the introduction that frames this discussion, and it sets the tone for the whole chapter. There's there's not really a lot about the resurrection in verses 1 and 2, but verses 1 and 2 are essential for talking about the resurrection. They put the discussion in its context. When Paul comes to chapter 15 and the doctrine of the resurrection, it's, it's as if he's coming full circle in 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a book that begins and ends with the gospel. Notice how Paul bookends this epistle. In chapter 1, he began by talking about Christ crucified. Chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, there's the beginning of the epistle. Then he talks about all these issues, all these problems. Then he gets to chapter 15 and spends 58 glorious verses talking about Christ resurrected. Begins with Christ crucified, ends with Christ resurrected. What does that teach us? That teaches us that all of these practical issues that he talks about throughout the middle of the book, they all must begin and end with a realization of the gospel. Mm-hmm. He deals with all these, all these topics that are hardly even mentioned. And in fact, a few of them, one of them I'm thinking of, is not mentioned anywhere else than 1 Corinthians. But 1 Corinthians is a letter that begins and ends with the gospel of Jesus Christ because Paul knows that the gospel must be the foundation upon which we build any doctrine or any practice in the Christian life. When we as a church are trying to figure out how should we do this or how should we do that, one of the questions that we ought to ask is how do we apply the truth of the gospel to whatever it is, right? That's really what Paul is doing. Think about it. I'm not going to re-preach the whole book this morning, but think about it. Whether it's Christian liberty, whether it's spiritual gifts, whether it's meat sacrifice to idols, what does Paul do? He, he says, well, what does the gospel teach us about this? He applies it to the church. And this is what he does in chapter 15. He begins by declaring unto them the gospel that he already preached unto them. And as he does so, he reminds them that the resurrection is a crucial component of that gospel. In the first 11 verses of this chapter, he gives testimony to the resurrection with four main proofs. Christ appeared to Peter and the twelve, verse 5. Secondly, Christ appeared to 500 brethren at once, verse 6. Thirdly, Christ appeared separately to James, verse 7. Fourthly, Christ appeared last of all to Paul himself, verse 9. Then he goes on to argue that if Christ is not risen, the following things must be true. If Christ is not risen, here's what must be true. Number one, Paul's gospel is false. And he is a false apostle and a false witness to Christ. 
verse 14 through 15. If Christ is not risen from the dead, all of us in this room are damnable heretics. Okay? Pretty big stuff, right? Secondly, Christ is not risen. Christ cannot save because there's no guarantee of the atonement. He's still in the grave. He, he, he couldn't even save himself. Why should we think he can save us? Verse 17. And thirdly, if Christ is not risen, the dead in Christ are perished forever. Forever. If Christ is not risen, no, grandmama's not in heaven. She's just in the grave. But then Paul goes on to say, because Christ is risen, the following things are certain. The gospel is true. Salvation is guaranteed. And the hope of believers to rise again is sure. Just as he came out of the grave, someday I'm coming out of the grave. The risen Christ will reign until all effects of sin are completely reversed. That includes the effects of sin on our physical bodies. Death is referred to as the last enemy because it is the last thing that will be defeated. And when will it be defeated? On the day of the resurrection. Death has many spoils right now. Death is looking pretty good. In fact, Death has a 100% winning rate, okay? Everybody that's ever lived has died. It's, it's only had one loss so far. That was Jesus Christ. And so death feels pretty good about itself, but there's coming a day in which death will lose everything. Everything it ever gained, it will lose it when Jesus Christ triumphs over death. It is for this gospel that Paul suffers, and his sufferings are in vain if Christ is not raised. That's what he says. Because Christ is raised, our laboring and our suffering is not in vain. Paul ends this chapter with a discussion about the nature of the resurrection. What will the resurrection be like? What will our resurrected bodies be like? And then he concludes with some practical implications of this doctrine on how we are to live our present lives. You can't even put it into words how much it greatly affects your life. Whether or not you believe in the resurrection shapes how you view what you're even doing here on this earth. And all the while, he is grounding his discussion in the preeminence of the gospel. So that's what I want us to consider for the rest of our time as we put our focus where Paul puts his focus, let us look at verses 1 and 2 and consider the preeminence of the gospel. Notice he begins in verse 1. And of course, I have three headings for you. The first is this. I want you to see the preaching of the gospel. He begins in verse 1 and he says, Moreover, brethren. Now the word moreover, uh, it's a little bit deceitful to us because it makes us think that he's talking about something that continues on, but the Greek word there is actually a word that indicates uh, he's transitioning to a new subject. Okay, so verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1, does not immediately follow the the thought train from chapter 14. He's, He's, hallelujah, praise the Lord, we're done with tongues, okay? We're moving on to something new. There is no immediate connection Now, of course, there is a connection because it's the same epistle and it's the same book, but there's no immediate thought connection. Starting something new. Moreover, brethren, notice what Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel. Now, some versions translate this phrase as, I remind you of the gospel or something like that. I call to your remembrance the gospel. And there's a sense in which that is what Paul is doing, Right, Because he says that this is the gospel that he's already preached to them. Uh, some of them have already believed it. They're already standing in it. So yes, there's a sense in which Paul is reminding them of the gospel, but that's not the word he uses. He doesn't use the Greek word for remind. He uses the Greek word for declare, as if he's never told it to them before. Why does he use that word? 
to, to make known the gospel or to reveal the gospel? Well, he's implying that he's preaching the gospel to them as if for the first time because there were some in the church who lost it. When Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel, he's not saying, here's a theological lesson that will help you out with some secondary matter of doctrine. No, Paul is saying, here is the message that you must believe to be saved. Here is the message that you must receive to be a Christian. Here is the message that must epitomize your Christian life. Here is the message that must define who you are. And so, yes, he knows he's already preached it to them, but he uses this word, declare. I declare the gospel to emphasize the preeminence of this gospel message and the perilous danger that one places themselves into if they lose it. The issue of the Corinthians is not just a failure to apply the gospel. That was their issue many times before. Okay? Church members suing one another doesn't necessarily mean they're lost. Okay? Might throw up an indicator. But it does mean that they are failing to apply the gospel in that situation. But when you deny the resurrection, you're not just failing to apply the gospel, you're rejecting the gospel. Charles Hodge says, to deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny the resurrection of Christ, and to deny the resurrection of Christ is to subvert the gospel. Therefore, Paul begins this chapter not with a theological defense of the doctrine of the resurrection, but with a declaration of the gospel. Far too often, we spend all of our time getting into theological debates with unbelievers when what they really need is to have the gospel proclaimed unto them. I'm not saying that we should be unwilling to engage in honest, meaningful discussion. I'm not saying that. But what the atheist needs is not a doctrinal defense of six-day creationism. You can believe that God created the world in six literal days and you can believe that the earth is somewhere around 7,000 years old and you can believe it just the way the Bible says it. You should, by the way. Amen? Amen. And you can believe that and you can die and go to hell. That's not the gospel. And you can also, I don't know how, some of the brightest theologians, well, I do know how, influenced by uh, enlightenment rationalism and other things and theological liberalism, you can also um, not believe that and still be saved. Now, I think you're really wrong, okay? And so what, what, this, what this atheist needs is not a doctrinal lesson on creationism. It's the gospel. He needs the gospel. And I could go on and on. What the Bible denier needs is not a theological argument for the doctrine of inspiration. He needs the gospel. And what the Corinthians needed... Those who rejected the resurrection of the dead, they needed the gospel. Furthermore, I think this verse is also saying to us that it's not just the lost and unbelieving who need to hear the gospel. Notice that Paul doesn't say, moreover, those of you who deny the resurrection, I declare unto you the gospel. No, he says, moreover, brethren, to the whole church, I know that there are some of you that aren't denying the resurrection, but guess what? I'm going to preach the gospel to you too. He doesn't say, uh, if you've already got this, feel free to skip ahead. He indiscriminately declares the gospel to the whole church because there is a universal need for the gospel. We need to hear the gospel every day. Because we never get so smart. We never get so doctrinally advanced. We never grow to a point in the Christian life that we move past our need for the gospel. That was the problem of the Corinthians. They thought that they had attained to such a superior level of spirituality. I mean, do you, you've ever met somebody like that or met a church like that? I mean, they think that they are so in the spirit that their feet don't even touch the ground. They think they've graduated to some, some super level of spirituality where they no longer need the gospel. But the irony is, here's the irony. 
That was the precise thinking that led some of them to deny the gospel. And there are those in our day who view the gospel, they view it as the elementary message that gets you into the faith. But then they think, in order to grow and mature in the Christian life, I need something deeper. And they don't give themselves to the consistent preaching of the gospel because they think of the gospel as a lesson they've already learned, a step they've already climbed, a procedure they've already completed. And let me tell you, that kind of thinking is horrendously fraught with danger. The minute we think that we have surpassed a need for the gospel is the minute we place our souls in a place of great vulnerability and harm. We don't need something more than the gospel. We need more of the gospel. We don't need our branches to grow out past the gospel. We need our roots to grow deeper and deeper down into the gospel. That's why we need to hear the gospel preached over and over and over again. There was a profound theologian in the 20th century who at the end of his ministry he was asked by one of his students professor what's the most profound thing you've ever learned as a theologian and he said most profound thing I've ever learned as a theologian Hmm. I think it's Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so and I looked at him and said really he said really how could there be a message more profound than that the God of heaven and earth sent his only begotten son to die for me on a cross and shed his blood for my sins and be resurrected the third day for my justification. Mm -hmm. The word gospel means good news or glad tidings. In fact, some of you might have a translation that says something like, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the good news. That's what the word means. And that's what the resurrection is. It's good news this morning that we have a risen Savior. It's good news that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and triumphed over the grave. It's good news that the bodies of believers will be raised again and made like to the glorious body of Christ. It's good news. And because the gospel is good news, that means it has nothing to do with what you and I do. If it's good news, it's something God does, not something we do. What do we do with it? We declare it. That's what Paul says. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. God is the one who designed it. God is the one who accomplished it. We just declare it. Notice what Paul says next. He says, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you. Now, the thrust of this verse is somewhat obscure when we translate it into English, okay? Why? Because the English word gospel is only a noun. But the the Greek word gospel is also a verb, okay? So the same word in verse 1 that is translated preached is the same word that's translated gospel. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I gospeled to you. That's what he's saying. Or maybe this will help. I evangelize you with the evangel. So to evangelize is to gospelize. What Paul is telling us here is that this is all there is to do with the gospel. We don't add to it or take away from it. We don't dress it up. We don't sugarcoat it. We don't attempt to make it more palatable for our modern audience. The message of a bloody Messiah being crucified on the cross is not exactly appealing to the flesh. But we don't change what the gospel is. All there is for us to do is to proclaim the good news as God has first proclaimed it to us. Preaching the gospel is our primary responsibility as a church. 
That is why we are here. It is the task that the Lord has given us to do until he returns. It was the great commission that he gave to his church before he ascended. Preach the gospel to every creature. Go into all the world. Teach them to observe all things that I've given to you first. And in a day when so many churches are looking to do everything but preach the gospel, let us stay committed to this great and high calling to be proclaimers of the gospel message. Everything we do as a church must revolve around our commission to preach the gospel. When we go to the street corners for our evangelistic outreach, we go to preach the gospel. When we go to minister at the nursing home, we go to preach the gospel. When we meet for our men's book studies and our ladies' book studies, we meet to learn more about the gospel. Even when we have our monthly church fellowships, when we have this time of of socializing, we, we want to fellowship around the truths of the gospel. When we meet on Wednesdays for prayer, we come to pray that the gospel would go forth from this church. And when we gather on the Lord's Day, we gather to sing the gospel, to read the gospel, to preach the gospel. Paul believed this with all his heart. For Paul, this was the very reason God saved him. He tells the church in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 16, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. You see the preaching of the gospel in this text. Secondly, I want you to see the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. At the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2, Paul tells us three things that happen when the gospel is preached. Three things that happen when the gospel is preached. Notice he says that he's declaring the gospel which he preached. Notice, which also ye have received. When we preach the gospel, we are giving the gospel out to all who hear, and we are inviting them to receive it. Um, I, I am not a big fan of some who think it's macho or some who think it makes them some higher degree of Calvinist or whatever to deny the reality that the gospel is an invitation. I've heard some say, well, the gospel is not an invitation. It's just a command. And uh, we don't care what you do with it. We're just going to preach it. I'm sorry. That's not the way anybody in the Bible ever preached the gospel. When Paul preached the gospel, he preached it with tears and with pain and with long suffering because he had a desire that his hearers would receive it to the saving of their souls. That's how we must preach the gospel. When we hand out a gospel tract, we don't do it with our arms crossed saying, now here's the truth of God. You do with it what you want. No, we hand it out and we say, young lady or young, young, young sir or whoever it is, nothing would make me happier. Nothing would give me more joy. In fact, the heavens rejoice if you would read this gospel message and repent and believe. To receive the gospel is not only to believe that the gospel is good news, but that the gospel is good news for you. To receive the gospel is to embrace the gospel and to say, this is for me. The gospel is the good news of my Savior dying on the cross for me. He died for me. It's my good news. And he rose again the third day for my justification. He did it for me. There are some of you here today that you might really believe that the gospel is good news. You might really believe in the historical facts of the gospel. But do you believe that it's good news for you? Have you received it? Have you you owned the gospel as God's good news for you? I stand here in this pulpit today as God's minister and I offer the gospel and I invite you on behalf of God to come and take the gospel as God's good news for you. 
How do you receive? The, it's easier than receiving a letter. You don't, you don't have to go look for your, your knife and your cutter and, and, and open the envelope and pull it out. You just believe. You just receive it by faith. You can do that where, from where you sit this morning. You could receive the good news of God for you. Don't receive the gospel as an abstract announcement. Don't just say, yes, I believe it's good news. Receive the gospel as a letter with your name on it. In the preaching of the gospel, God is calling you personally and intimately to come and welcome to the good news of his son dying for you. And I believe in unconditional election. And I believe in a definite atonement. And I believe that I can take the gospel to anyone. And I can say, if you receive the gospel, you will be saved. If you receive this message, it will be good news for you. Because he won't cast you out. Because he said, all those who come unto me, I'll receive to myself. Not losing one of them. The power of the gospel is first seen and that we receive it. We receive it. You received the God. I'm not asking you, have you received baptism? Or have you received church membership? Or have you walked some aisle and prayed some prayer? Or have you received an emotional experience? I'm not asking that. I'm asking, have you received the gospel of Jesus Christ? Notice this. Love this. Secondly, the power of the gospel is seen in this phrase. Wherein ye stand. This phrase does away with any notion that we somehow graduate from the gospel or move past our need for the gospel. The gospel is not a matter of past decision, but of present standing. So not only do I ask you, if you have received it, you receive it. One time, right? But I also ask you, are you still standing in the gospel? Right now, are you standing in the gospel? To stand in the gospel is to live and move and breathe and have your being in the gospel. Does the gospel encompass the totality of your life? Or does it just describe the way you spend a couple Sunday mornings a year? Does the gospel define who you are? If you were going to write a biography of yourself, if someone was going to describe you, would the first thing they say about you be gospel? Gospel. That's how I define them. That's who they are. Does the gospel serve as the foundation and superstructure of your entire existence? What does it look like to stand in the gospel? I might be many things. I'm a husband, a father, pastor, school teacher, on and on. My wife could die. The Lord could take her from me. He could take my children also. I could lose my job. I could get kicked out of my church. But you know, even if I was a childless, widower, homeless, unemployed, Nothing to take away the reality that I stand in the gospel because the gospel is who I am. It's who I am. Is that true of you? Could you say that honestly? Could you say that of yourself? It's not a hard question. You know yourself. You know the way you live your life. You know the passions of your heart. You know your innermost desires and you know whether or not they are for the gospel or not. So quit playing with yourself. In the gospel, Christ has given himself to me and he has taken me to be his and nothing, 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 nothing could change that. So if you want to go deeper in the Christian life, okay, go deeper right here. Mm-hmm. We, we, we love doctrine and theology around here, but, but go deeper right here. Consume your thoughts, invigorate your affections in the truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news in which you stand. Amen. Because you've received it. Notice, it goes on. Third thing, power of the gospel. You receive it, you stand in it, and then he says, verse 2, by which also you're saved. You know the familiar words of Paul in Romans 1, 16. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To you first, also to the Greek. And you can theologize the gospel. And you can write big, thick books about the gospel. And there are some really good, big, thick books about the gospel. There are men that have preached the gospel for decades. You can spend your entire life explaining the details of the gospel. But you can also boil the gospel down to three simple words. God saves sinners. Amen. That's the gospel. God saves sinners. That's good news. That's good news. If God tried to save sinners, it wouldn't be good news. If God tried to save people who were pretty good and just needed a little help, that wouldn't be good news. But it's good news that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's good news that he saved sinners. It's good news that he came not to call the whole, but the ill. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people need a doctor. You're sick. You're worse than sick. You're dead. You're trespasses and sins. But the gospel is good news because the gospel says, come and receive new life. The gospel is the only message that ever has or ever will save a soul from the guilt of his sins and the wrath of Almighty God. And it is by the gospel that you were saved from the penalty of your sins in the very moment, in the very moment that you believed the gospel for the very first time. And it is by the gospel that you are currently being saved from the power of your sins as you stand in the gospel and grow in the sanctifying grace of the gospel. You realize it's the same gospel that regenerated you, that sanctifies you? You're not saved by the gospel and then sanctified through some 12 steps to a better Christian life book, okay? You're sanctified by the gospel. And it is by the gospel that you will be saved from the very presence of sin when by the power of the gospel you are resurrected to dwell forever with Christ in a glorified, sinless body. Amen. This is the power of the gospel. You receive it, you stand in it, and it saves you unto the uttermost. And you can receive the power of this gospel right now. There's no waiting line. There's no application process. You don't have to fill out a form and mail it off and hope you hear back. You simply receive it through faith. You believe the message as it is preached. And you receive the good news of Christ for you. Well, thirdly, I want you to see, we've looked at the preaching of the gospel, the power of the gospel. I want you to see, thirdly, the perseverance of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that saves us. But listen, if, if you've kind of been coasting, you need to really pay attention. So we, need, we need to parse this out. I don't want to be a heretic, okay? But I, I also I want to say what the Bible says. So we have to be careful. The gospel is the good news that saves us, but our salvation by the gospel is contingent upon our perseverance in the gospel. There's an if in verse 2. And if you read the Bible then you know the word if is about the two, the biggest two-letter word in the English language. All of these wonderful things about receiving it and standing in it, being saved by it, being resurrected, they all hang on this word if. If, if, if. If should jump off the page and wake you up. Okay? You're saved by the gospel. Paul says, verse 2, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. That's a big if. The phrase, keep in memory, is translated from a word that is really better understood as hold fast. Okay, so I, I've already complained about um, verse 1 a little bit. Let me complain about verse 2, okay? <laughs> keep in memory is true. You must keep it, but it's it's stronger than that. It's not just an intellectual memory of the gospel, right? It's not, It's not. well, if I forget what the preacher said or if I forget a, a, a Sunday school lesson, am I in danger of hellfire? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you are saved by the gospel if you hold fast to the gospel. 
If you quit believing in the gospel, you aren't saved by the gospel. You must continue in faith in the gospel to be saved and resurrected with Christ on the last day. You must continue. Does that shock you? Do you hear me saying that? And do you think, well, what about eternal security? Well, what about once saved, always saved? What about all these sermons you preach where you talk about it's just, it's grace, it's, it's faith, it's not your works, and now here you are saying, I have to continue in faith. That is what I'm saying. It's exactly what I'm saying. Well, how should we under, this is a warning. New Testament, full of warnings, okay? <coughs> how should we understand this warning? How should we understand this passage of Scripture that warns us of falling away from the faith and not enduring to the end? What is the threat in this verse? Okay, that, 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 that'll help you. The threat is not that you can be really saved at one point in your life only to be lost later on down the road. That's not the threat. The threat is not about God undoing something that he previously did and taking away something that he previously gave. That's not the threat. The threat is about the real danger of having an empty, worthless faith that doesn't save because it's not real. If a person makes a profession of faith and later walks away and rejects the gospel, they didn't lose something that God gave them. They fooled themselves into thinking they had something that they never truly possessed. And so Paul says, you're saved by the gospel if you really have it. So it's, you know, I don't believe in once saved, always saved. I believe in if saved, always saved. Because once saved, always saved says you can pray a prayer and have a preacher sign the back of your Bible and write the date down, and then you can go on and you can live like hell. And anytime you feel a little guilt, you feel a little conviction, you just remember that decision you made 20 years ago at summer camp, and you're good. It's not what the Bible teaches. God gives us this warning and other warnings just like it, not to scare us with the possibility of losing our salvation. God does not want His people Constantly afraid of condemnation. He wants you to have full, confident assurance. But he gives us these warnings to cause us to honestly and sincerely examine our hearts to see if we are really in the faith. He gives us these warnings so that we will be serious about the state of our souls. He gives us these warnings so that we will be diligent diligent in our pursuit of holiness as we look forward to the resurrection. 2 Peter 3 and verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things. What things? The resurrection. Are you looking forward to the resurrection? Okay, if you are, be diligent that ye may be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. So what does that mean? Well, it means that if we're not diligent, we have no reason to believe that we're saved. In fact, if we're not diligent, we have every reason to think that perhaps we've believed in vain. So he says, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, if you hold fast to the gospel, unless you have believed in vain. These are words that call for a sober-minded inspection of your heart and your soul. Have you believed in vain? I don't think there's anybody in here this morning that would stand up and would say, maybe there is, I don't know, but I don't think there's anybody that would say, I adamantly reject the gospel. I don't believe it. No, if I asked, went around the room, do you love Jesus? Yeah, I love Jesus. Are you saved? Yeah, I'm saved. Have you believed in vain? Paul's cutting through our superficiality, isn't he? Have you deceived yourself into thinking you're saved when you're not? That's what it means to believe in vain. To believe in vain is to have a faith that does not cause you to ultimately persevere. Continuance in the gospel is necessary for the consummation of our salvation. Those 
who endure to the end will be saved. Those who are raised with Christ on the last day will be those who persevered through a real living faith in the gospel. Amen. You say, brother, I thought you said that the gospel is the good news that Christ is mine and I am his and nothing can change that. But now you say, I must persevere, which is true. Yes. <laughs> yes, God will preserve you. And yes, you must persevere. Here's the key. Because... Your perseverance is the means that God uses to preserve you unto the end. You believe in perseverance of the saints? I believe in perseverance of the saints. But God doesn't preserve his people in the filth of their sin. He preserves his people in holiness. And if you're not pursuing holiness, you have no reason to think that God is with you and preserving you. Because Hebrews tells us, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no man will see the Lord. That verse is not talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's talking about your personal holiness in the Christian life. It doesn't say you have to have perfect holiness or you won't see the Lord. No, it says you better be pursuing holiness, striving after holiness. That means when I do something that's unholy, I repent of it. And I continue this pursuit of holiness. But if you think that you're saved, destined for heaven when you die, with no pursuit of holiness in your life, you have believed in vain. So easy, especially in our day, so easy to have a vain faith. That's why God exhorts his people and encourages us time and time again to hold fast to the gospel. Okay, I'm going to say something very important to you. I'm going to tell you how to hold fast to the gospel. Are you ready? You hold fast to the gospel by remembering that the gospel is the good news that Christ will hold fast to you. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold. All the sin all the temptation, all the struggle, all the trial. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful past. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Amen. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. You ever made a promise to someone? Maybe you even made a promise to God. A vow that you didn't keep. You know why you didn't keep it? Because you don't have the ability to keep all the promises that you make. But his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast because he values the price of the precious blood of his son too much to allow it to be shed for me and not receive me unto himself. You hold fast to the gospel by coming to the realization that you can't hold fast to the gospel unless he holds fast to you. And you put no confidence in the strength of the flesh. And you trust alone in the keeping power of Christ. And you preach that gospel message to yourself every day. And you realize that if you go to bed tonight and wake up in the morning as a Christian, it is only because he kept you believing on him. The faith of true believers shall not be overthrown because it is built on the sure foundation of Christ's gospel. Now unto him that is able to keep you to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Let me insert italics. This is not the word of God. To present you before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy at the resurrection. It's when that happens. Unto him who is able to keep you. He's able to keep you. I know you struggle. I know there's temptations in your life. I know there's times when you just don't see how you could live the Christian life. He's able to keep you. Mm, 
You know why I woke up as a Christian this morning? Went to bed last night. Christ was precious. I believed on him. I loved him. I woke up this morning, thought the same thing. You know why? It's not because I'm a pastor. It's not because of how much I study. It's not because of how I preach. It's because he kept me. It's because he held me fast. It's because he holds me fast. And therefore, I hold fast to him. It's the only reason. Any, any other reason that would involve some contribution of my independent, autonomous efforts is just rubbish. He's the reason. Mm-hmm. Well, what does this have to do with the resurrection? Everything. How do I know he will keep me? How do I know he will preserve me? Because he preserved Jesus. Because he raised him from the dead on the third day. I might have to bear the cross. In fact, if I follow Christ, I do bear the cross. It's what Jesus said. I might bear the cross. I might be crucified unto the world and unto the flesh. I might experience trial and affliction. But he's going to keep me. Sunday's coming. And there's going to be a resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead as a personal guarantee that just as Jesus came out of his grave, someday I will come out of mine and you will come out of yours if you hold fast to the gospel. Without the resurrection, our faith is vain. Paul will go on to say later in this chapter, if Christ has not been raised, then we of of all men are most to be pitied. We're miserable. The world should feel sorry for us. You ever see somebody and see what they believe and see how they live and you just feel sorry for them? You're not even mad that they're wrong. You just feel sorry for them. That's, that's us if Christ is not raised. There is no perseverance without the doctrine of the resurrection. What's the point of holding fast to the gospel if death is the end? Why would I hold fast unto death if when I die, it's just over? But on the other hand, brothers and sisters, because the resurrection is true and because the dead will rise again, there is nothing more important than holding fast to the gospel, which the resurrection is an indispensable part of. What we're talking about this morning is a matter of life or death. It's a matter of eternal life or eternal death. Holding fast to the gospel determines whether or not you will go to heaven or hell when you die. Holding fast to the gospel determines whether you will be raised unto glory or raised unto condemnation. Mm-hmm. My prayer is that there will come a day in which I will stand, maybe not behind this physical pulpit here. We just got a new one over the new building. I can't wait to stand behind it. But I will stand behind the pulpit of this church for the last time and I will be able to look my people in the eye. Maybe some of you will be there. Maybe some of you will already be with the Lord. But I will be able to say, for however many years, I preached the gospel to you. I made known unto you the good news. And if you go to hell, it's your fault, not mine. But if you persevere, if you are resurrected unto glory on the last day, it is because you held fast to the gospel and Christ held fast to you. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. You are saved if you hold fast to this gospel that I'm preaching to you. And so we say, for my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the truth that you will hold us fast. And you're holding us fast will cause us to hold fast ourselves to the gospel message. Father, I pray for everyone that is here this morning, for those 
who know Christ, for those who are standing in the gospel, give them, give me, give us the grace of perseverance to hold fast to the gospel, to keep believing in you. Lord, let us wake up Christians tomorrow morning and every other morning until we wake up with you in heaven. And for those who may be here that have not received the gospel, I pray that what they heard today was not just the threat of hell, though that is a real threat, but I pray that they heard a loving, gracious invitation, not given from me, but given from you, Father. An invitation to come, to receive the good news of Christ as good news for them. Hasten the day when our faith becomes sight, when Christ returns, when our bodies are raised and we are given that body that is glorious likened unto the body of our Lord Jesus and we dwell with you forever. Help us, Lord, not only to be orthodox in our beliefs but to have orthopraxy in the way we live our Christian life. We love you. We praise you and we thank you for all of the good things that you have done and yet will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.